0: warm welcome to this week's Wildlife Matters podcast with me your host Nigel Palmer. Well how's your week been? The weather down here in the south has um, got a little bit cooler. One or two rather thundery storms but it's still beautiful summertime out there and there is just so much to see out in the countryside right now with all the flora and fauna reaching its peak of (laughs) colour. I hope you're getting out there to enjoy it. So what do we have for you on this week's podcast? Well, in Wildlife Matters Investigates, we're going to be looking into the plight of captive cetaceans in a campaign that we have got called Prison Grove and explaining that to you. And it's a kind of a double whammy with dolphins today because they're in this week's Nature News 2, where we are going to be talking about a recent research article that's come out explaining how mum dolphins actually change the way they communicate with their babies yeah mum and baby talk so that's a great story and in this week's wildlife matters main feature i'm asking you to come and join me on a summer wildflower walk and uh, we're just going to take a look at some of the things that you can find right now out in the countryside pretty much wherever you are they're not universal around the uk but they are in most parts of the uk and if you're listening in other countries then just enjoy a brief glimpse into summertime here in the uk and that's all coming up And welcome to this week's Wildlife Matters Nature News. On this week's Nature News, we're looking at a recent research study that's come out explaining how dolphins communicate with their young. Yeah, female bottlenose dolphins have been found to have a remarkable ability to alter their vocalizations when communicating with their calves, a behavior previously believed to be unique to humans. According to the recent study published in PNAS, they modify their signature whistles, which are higher pitched and have a broader range of tones around the dependent offspring. The study analyzed recordings of female bottlenose dolphins, focusing on those with long-term mother and child bonds and vocal learning capabilities During catch-and-release events off the coast of the Sarasota Bay in Florida, the study highlights dolphins' potential for verbal learning and language development, just like human children, as these modifications enhance bonding and, of course, attention. Dolphins and whales are renowned for their intelligence and possess traits and behaviours that suggest they have complex thoughts. Research indicates that dolphins use syntax and grammar to convey information through vocalizations. They have the second highest brain to body ratio after humans and use echolocation to communicate and navigate in dark waters. They also have specialized cells, spindle neurons, associated with advanced abilities such as reasoning, problem-solving and indeed understanding. Additionally, they employ innovative hunting techniques like using sea sponges to catch prey without damaging their noses. Bottlenose dolphins in the Shark Bay area of Australia have been seen using conch shells to fish, bringing them to the surface to drain the water before they go on to eat their prey Yet another study that shows that uh, just the intelligence level of dolphins or all cetaceans, to be honest. And the Nature News story does link into our Wildlife Matters Investigates, which is coming up next, and that is about captive cetaceans in a story we have entitled Prison Growth. this week's Wildlife Matters Investigates where today we are going to be telling the real story for captive cetaceans and this story is known as Prison Grove now we all know that feeling if you've ever seen dolphins interacting with each other there is an immediate empathy with these highly sentient incredible mammals so let's ask the question What's wrong with SeaWorld and the many other dolphinariums around the world? If you haven't already, take a look at the film Blackfish. I'll put a link in this episode's description down below. This film exposed the plight of orcas at SeaWorld. It is a distressing and gritty look behind the scenes at the reality of keeping animals captive purely for human entertainment. What happens when the show is over and the audience is gone? Well, the answer is nothing. Most dolphins are left to languish in their tanks, forced to wait for food until the next showtime. Dolphins are highly intelligent, highly sensitive, and should be seen as non-human persons with their own specific rights. Simply put, it is morally unacceptable to keep them captive for entertainment purposes. Wildlife Matters wants to see the implementation of animal rights to protect these and other sentient beings from the hell of captivity. And that's why we support Steve Wise of the Non-Human Animal Rights Project, who is working for the recognition and protection of fundamental rights for non-human animals Steve's film, Uncaged, and again, I'll link that one in the show notes below. And did you know that orcas are in fact dolphins? You see, centuries ago, Spanish seamen named them whale killers after seeing the orca pods tracking and killing whale. But over time, or perhaps translation back to English, they became known as killer whales. But dolphins, alongside whales, belong to the classification of cetacean. They have the second largest brain of all marine mammals and they are at the top of the food chain, interconnecting the whole marine ecosystem. They are vital to the biodiversity of our world's oceans. These animals are incredibly intelligent Dolphins are sentient and that means that they are self-aware and they can recognise themselves in a mirror, for instance. Dolphins use a complex system of echolocation to navigate their surroundings and to hunt their prey. They bounce high-pitched sounds off of objects and listen for the returning echoes. A dolphin's diet typically consists of fish, squid and crustaceans. Dolphins do give birth to live young, and they nurse their calves for at least 11 months, maybe up to two years. Family members will often remain together for life, and orcas are perhaps the most social mammal on Earth. They live in groups known as pods for their entire lives. The pods are made up of multiple generations, and female orcas will never leave their mother, other than for mating but they will always return afterwards. Each orca pod will have their own set of calls, a bit like we have regional accents and dialogues, as well as their own habitat and prey species, differing from other groups of orcas. Another adaptation in dolphins that highlights their incredible abilities is unlike humans, dolphins are conscious breathers, choosing when and how to take breath. To prevent drowning whilst they sleep, only half of the dolphin's brain shuts down while the other half remains awake. Isn't that incredible? They also communicate via the use of several sounds including clicks, whistles and squeaks. Studies have also shown that individual dolphins have a unique signature whistle which they often use when communicating with other members of the family or pod. It is also believed that dolphins respond to the sound of their signature whistles. This communication is used by institutes such as the military. National Geographic uncovered the use of dolphins, or combat dolphins as they were known, as a vital part of naval teams. The dolphins are trained to search for lost divers and underwater mines in restricted waterways, according to the Russian Navy, the source from National Geographic. Dolphins can reach depth and travel in murky water, which cannot be replicated by any form of technology. Their sonar allows them to pick up sounds that we or our technology simply cannot. The sounds bounce off from objects, allowing an acoustic picture of their surroundings known as echolocation. Dolphins are used amongst other naval groups, including in the US, who find they can find unarmed test ordnance like practice mines. Again, that source is from National Geographic. The confinement of these highly intelligent beings began in the 1960s, solely for the purposes of human entertainment and financial gain. This industry has since expanded to include dolphin assisted therapy, petting pools, swimming encounters and primarily SeaWorld and other dolphin aeriums. The captive environment has a devastating effect upon their welfare. There is evidence to show captivity shortens life expectancy dramatically. According to the National Ocean and Atmospheric Administration, on average, male walkers can live up to 50 years in the wild, whilst females can maybe make as long as 100 years. It's a fact that orcas held in captivity have a significantly lower chance of living beyond 30 years, as SeaWorld has reported an average lifespan of just 17 years. The confinement of these magnificent creatures prevents any possibility of mimicking their natural habitat and surroundings. The tanks they are kept in are just a fraction of the vast open waters where orcas can swim for up to 60 miles or more a day, and some even travel over 5,000 miles in just 42 days. Additionally, the captivity of orcas and dolphins deprives them of their family unit and important social interactions, which are crucial for their overall health and well-being. Wildlife Matters does not want to see wild dolphins and orcas being forced to live in artificial environments where their movement, diet, social structure, and behavior, and their entire way of life is manipulated and controlled and restricted by humans. There is no need for it. And we believe the sooner we can close SeaWorld and the other places like it, the better it will be for all dolphins and for us too. And that has been this week's Wildlife Matters Investigate. No, it's that time again on the Wildlife Matters podcast where we get to spend a few precious moments in nature. So I'd like you to join me as we take an early spring walk into the garden and we arrive at the pond. It's a wildlife pond surrounded by emerging water plants and leaves. There's a faint buzz in the air from the early insects and I managed to record this. So let's see how many of you recognise what you are listening to. I hope you enjoyed your uh, time in nature there on the Wildlife Matters podcast my info moments and how many of you picked up that there were actually two amphibian species on that clip yeah my garden ponds frogs and toads another easy one I think for you this week I am now on the Wildlife Matters podcast coming up. Join me for a summer wildflower walk on this week's Wildlife Matters main event. Welcome to this week's Wildlife Matters main feature. And today, you're joining me as we're going for a little walk. Yeah, come for a stroll with me. And uh, let's have a look at the summer wildflowers. So, first of all, let me start by saying thank you for joining me for this midsummer stroll as we go and explore the wildflowers that are currently brightening up our meadows and hedgerows in this balmy hot summer of 2023. Wildflowers are certainly of more interest than when I was younger. Back in the eighties, we were facing up to the loss of 97% of wildflower meadows. And that's around seven and a half million acres of wildflower meadow and flower rich grassland that is now gone. And those figures come from the Royal Botanic Gardens in Kew. In my experience, the UK May have a lot of farmland, but when did you last see a wildflower meadow? Wildflowers are indeed beautiful, poetic, and whimsical, but they are incredibly vital too. There are over 1400 species of insects that rely on them for their food and shelter, and that includes things such as grasshoppers, crickets, and of course, butterflies. Wildflower meadows help to maintain a healthy ecosystem, with hedgerows, meadow bird species and bats eating the insects that breed in the wildflower meadows. The increase in industrial farming and the systematic use of pesticides has removed or destroyed vast areas of meadow in the UK that have been cleared for a monocrop production or grazing. This is so short-sighted of us. The wildflower meadows provide us with beneficial insects to fertilise the crops. To state the obvious, it's how an ecosystem works. In our recent history, how an ecosystem fails as we take away the bottom tiers, and we eventually get left with nothing but dried, non-fertile soil that we cannot use to support any plant life. A meadow rich in its range and species of wildflowers will support the bees, the butterflies and all the other pollinators and maintain them and their diversity throughout all seasons. It will also keep the soil rich in hummus meaning it is fertile to grow food crops for people as well. But it isn't the only food we get from wildflowers Wildflowers make a significant contribution to modern medicine as they contain compounds used in medicines, for example, the perfectly named self heal. Clearly, our ancestors knew the value of this plant, which has antibiotic properties, and foxgloves, which, although poisonous in their natural form, contain chemicals used in the treatment of drugs for heart disease. Wildflower meadows can naturally deal with the so-called pests as well. The crop damaging insects have natural predators that will stop the problems from getting out of hand without a drop of pesticide ever being needed. The beautiful wildflower meadow I'm visiting today is rich in its diversity and has plants that you will struggle to find but that have A vital role in this essential natural ecosystem. Take this plant for example, yeah over here is yellow rattle. It has a beautiful and unique look that is hard to mistake. Yellow rattle has a yellow tube like flowers protruding from an inflated green calyx which appears from May to September. It has serrated leaves with rich dark veins which sprout opposite each other from up the stem. Its stems have black spots. When the flowers of yellow rattle fade, the brown calypses that contain the sepals in which the tiny seeds ripen can be seen and heard. That's how it got its distinctive rattle, hence its name. This allows more delicate wildflowers to recolonize so yellow rattle is often used to turn intensively managed grasslands back into species-rich meadows. Now, just over here we have um, common knapweed. Now, take a look at the tightly packed thistle-like purple flower heads of the common knapweed. They bloom on all types of grassland. It is in bloom from June through to about September and is a huge favourite of all butterflies including common blues, marble whites and meadow browns. Its local name is black knapweed, and that relates to the fact that it is sometimes so covered in these butterflies but is equally vital to bees, beetles and a lot of other insects. Just over here is one of my favourites and for me the Oxide Daisy is one of the loveliest and most underrated of summer wildflowers. It looks like a gangly, slightly overgrown daisy with colossal flower heads just nodding in the breeze. It will flower from June all the way through to September and to me it's a sign that summer has indeed arrived. Better still, the pollinators just love it. Particularly hoverflies, solitary bees and butterflies like small tortoise shells. Oxide daisy flowers are so bright and cheerful, with white petals and sunshine yellow centers that appear to glow in the fading light of an evening. This earned them the local names of moon daisy and moon penny, and I can see why. The childhood game was "He loves me, he loves me not," whilst plucking the petals. Although each petal is in fact an individual flower, as Oxide daisies have composite flower heads consisting of yellow disc florets, surrounded by ray florets, is thought to have started with the Oxide daisy and is now so well known to all of us. Just over here is another really intriguing plant, it's called Tansy. Just take a smell, it's a really aromatic rough grassland plant that's often found along riverbanks and sometimes roadside verges. It has fern-like foliage and yellow flower heads that appear in clusters between July and about October. It is a composite flower meaning the flower heads are made up of many tiny flowers called disc florets but they have no outer ray florets. Townsend has a long and incredibly varied history of medical usage, being used to induce abortions in the Middle Ages and to control flatulence after eating fish and lentils at Lenten meals. It is in fact toxic if consumed in large quantities, it can cause convulsions in the liver and also brain damage. It is perhaps better known for being packed into coffins as wreaths or as a very effective insect repellent. Be careful, because some people with sensitive skin, it can cause contact with dermatitis. Leaving the meadow, we now get to an area of wetland. As we head towards the river, I see a rare wildflower ahead, let me just check, uh, yeah. yes it is. This is the grass of Parnassus, which is in fact not a grass. Instead getting its common name from the translucent green stripes that adorn the white petals of its cut-shaped flower. It was once a common plant, but now it is a wetland specialist that is disappearing from so much of the UK along with its associated habitat. Over the years as the land has been drained for agriculture and development, many of our wetlands have disappeared or become fragmented, leading to a decline of Grass of Parnassus and wetland wildlife in general. The grass of Parnassus is also known as the bog star, and it has a striking creamy white flowers on tall stems up to 30 centimetres in height. The flowers have five oval petals with distinctive grass-like green veins running down them, surrounding the yellow stamens and the five anthers flowers can be seen from June through to September and note how the leaves cut the stem around the base and are dark green and heart-shaped. quickly, come over here because I've just spotted something I know you will love. It has the wow factor, don't you think? Yeah, it's a bee orchid, but this beautiful but temperamental flower is now sadly in decline throughout most of the UK. If you see one, you should never pick the flower, and yes, I know it's beautiful, and it looks just like a little bee, but still, that plant has spent up to eight years producing that single beautiful flower. And if you pick the flower, it is unlikely that it will ever flower again. You will have taken away its only chance of producing seeds better then to admire what an incredible beauty of nature the bee orchid is by appreciating that it has evolved to trick solitary bees into pollinating them. Yes, bee orchids look like female bees. Good enough that the male solitary bees will try to mate with them, but pollinate the flowers instead. The actual species of solitary bee that the orchid mimics isn't present here in the UK so all bee orchids here are self-pollinating. Bee orchids offer only a fleeting glimpse of their beauty as they flower in June and sometimes into July. So don't miss your chance to get out and see them while you can. Now come on let's head back to the lane that runs along the western edge of the wildflower meadow. Let's take a look at three prevalent and well-known summer favourite wildflowers. Firstly This is cow parsley. We've all seen the frothy, floating flowers of cow parsley that adorns our hedgerows, woodland edges and many roadside verges throughout May and June each year. This tall, hollow-stemmed plant with its umbrals of white flowers, and that means umbrella-like flower clusters, proliferates before dying away just as quickly as it arrives. It's favourite feeding plant of orange tip butterflies and the tiny marmalade hoverflies. What an amazing name. Take one of the leaves and crush it between your fingers. Hmm? And what are you smelling? Yes, it's a really strong aniseed type scent. The plant's local name is Queen Anne's Lace and it's not hard to understand why with the lacy lightness of the umbels as they dance on the wind. Standing as tall as the cow parsley is another big favourite of mine. It's the foxglove. June is the foxglove's time to reach for the sky and display their full ornamental dress. But this beautiful flower often hides its potentially deadly secret. All parts of the foxglove are poisonous. Ingesting any amount of the plant can result in nausea, headaches, diarrhea, or even heart and kidney problems. So look but don't touch, and always wash your hands before you eat afterwards. Foxgloves are beloved by wildlife. They're beautiful bell shaped purple flowers all hanging from one side of the tall stem. They are a favourite of moths and long tongued bumblebees, like the garden bumblebee. Foxgloves are what is known as biennial, meaning that in their first year, they produce a floret of leaves, but not a stem or flowers. But in their second year, they will produce their flowers and spread their seeds to ensure future generations of foxgloves. flowers. We're nearly back now, but this is a great plant to finish on. It's beautiful, pom-pom-like flowers look angelic. It's called Devil's Bit Scabious and it's another one of my favourite late summer wildflowers. You see, Devil's Bit Scabious brightens any area it grows with its pinkish and pops of purple when it flowers from July right through to the early part of October. Bees, moths and butterflies simply love it and it's a main food plant for the now declining marsh fritillary butterfly. The unusual name comes from British folklore and legend, which tells us that this excellent plant was so valuable as it could be used as a dye for clothing, as a seasoning in food, and as a herbal remedy for fevers, eczema, and the plague, (laughs) yikes. And it could even be used to heal the bite of venomous creatures and scurvy, lots of big claims. It was such a great asset to people that the folklore says that the devil got angry and bit off its roots in spite. And if you look at the plant's short and stubby roots, you can see it really does look like it's been bitten off from below. Well, thank you so much for joining me on today's Summer Wildflower Walk. If you've enjoyed it, then do let me know in the comments and let's maybe do some more of these in the future. But for now, this is me, Nigel Palmer saying thanks for joining me. Well, I really hope you enjoyed our wildflower midsummer walk, and. Um, on the next Wildlife Matters podcast, we're going to keep that theme going a bit because we are going to be looking at the wild summer visitors here in the UK. That's a really nice one. I do hope you can join me for that one. On Wildlife Matters Investigates, is not so nice. We are looking into the upcoming start of the fox hunting season and how they begin. The prelude, as they say, to their season is coming or autumn hunting, or pound exercise. Yeah, they have many, many names for what is absolutely vile and gross. And we will be explaining that in more detail to you on the next Wildlife Matters Podcast. Of course, we're gonna have all the latest nature news and we will make time to spend a few mindful moments together in nature what i would like to say though is a huge thank you to everybody in our community and if you're listening to this podcast if you're sharing it with people and we really would ask you nicely as we can to do that because um, if you like what you hear go tell somebody all about it that's how our community will grow and the more we grow the louder our voice will be and the more we can do to help our precious wildlife and that is what this is all about so Remember, whenever you look deep into nature, you will understand everything better. But for now, that's the end of this week's Wildlife Matters podcast. So this is me, your host, Nigel Palmer, signing out.